almost became a millionaire last night. I, Armin and I both worked late, and I was like, hey, man, um, I don't know if both of us should be working late the night before this pod. He's like, no, bro, I'm good. I could have used a couple more hours. I'm good, I'm good. I'm good, fam. Start the show, doesn't even pop my mic up. No, you're killing it. You're doing so good, buddy. No one can tell. Hey, hey, no one. Hey, nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's always potted up this one day. Oh, it's down. Yeah, okay. It's oh, I love that's that's honestly that's gotta be my favorite excuse. I always do the job. Uh, well, I just made this. I just screwed it up this every once in a while. Oh, it's only once in a while where I screw it up and don't put the host of the show on the air. Only every so often. Anyway, I was I was so close to being rich. I yesterday, if you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at JD Bunkus, I told you that Austin Matthews is going to score a goal. I said put the house on it. It was a great line and went from one thirty three to minus one twenty eight. It was great. Bang, scores a goal. I said he's going to probably score two goals and those plus three eighty. Bang, lovely bet plus three eighty. Said if he's getting those two goals, which I think he is, Mitch Marner's probably getting points. So take his over one and a half. Plus 148, bang, that hits. But I was sitting there. I also had a bet on the hat trick. And after that second goal bounced on him, it was plus 1,700 when I bought it. Again, also moved to plus 1,800 on me later. I bought it too early. Usually, it usually goes the other way. And I was sitting there thinking, man, if Matthew scores this third goal, um, I'm retiring. This is over. I was thinking about creative ways to quit my job. So close. So unbelievably close. Ah, it'll hurt me forever. Anyways, the Leafs do win, and they're rolling. They go 5-0 and without Morgan Riley. Uh, people always say it's, it's, it's just a joy to cover this team because they always give you something. There's always things to talk about. And those people are right. And one of those people that also talks about the Maple Leafs is my friend Anthony Petrelli of Maple Leaf Hot Stove. What's up, brother? How we doing? I'm good, man. How about you? Uh, I'm good, except for, like I said, I was very close, very, very close to being a wealthy person today. Like, it would have been, <laughs> would have been a real just, you know, I've had futures before where you ride them at like a number like that, you know, plus 17, plus 1800. I haven't ever done that in a game before where I'm just sitting there off of a one night result going, oh my God, I was, I was, uh, what's his name? Kendall. Just, is this happening? Can I, can I win? And then I had the sad face right at the end thinking, I can't believe I didn't get the empty netter. But yeah, okay, so you wrote, this was kind of a, a great game to have, though, because it was a real microcosm of a lot of things that have happened without Morgan Riley, right? You've got this emergence of Bobby McMahon. He's doing things. You've got uh, the defense pairing of Lilligren and Brody showing a lot more. You've got Matthews continuing his play. Marner, I think, elevating his this, these different lines, all of a sudden Tavares scoring, a lot of narratives out of this one, but I want to start with this. So I want to kind of wrap it through those topics with you about this Leafs team without Morgan Riley, but I, I want to start with how much of it do you think is real? Like, do you view this truly as a team trending in the right direction and that has found something over the course of these last five games? Yeah, I think that would probably be pushing it a little bit. I think some of the players individually playing better is real, but the team overall, I think, is shooting like 17% over these five games. Like their numbers are very much middling. I know they've kind of locked things down a little bit defensively, and you kind of have to contextualize that. But 
overall, it's not like they beat any good teams. Like, I don't think any of the five teams they played should make the playoffs. I actively wouldn't want to watch any of the five teams they played, or four teams technically, in the playoffs. So how can you ultimately look at that and say, yeah, these guys are, you know, if they did it against a slate of Tampa, Florida, Boston, I think we would look at it a lot differently. But they're like Morgan Riley is still an important part to this team. I think that's probably going to get a little bit overblown right now, especially as they have Vegas and Colorado on the docket now. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with that. And it's been a big reason why I've been saying if I'm tree living and I'm doing the the big buys at the deadline, if there's a a real shift in my mentality when it comes to the the pieces that I'm willing to put on the table in order to acquire talent around this group, I do want to see this continue against better competition. Uh, I do believe that you need to beat up on the bad teams that are in front of you, that we have criticized this team for not doing it. But I think two things have happened that are a reality um, over this stretch. One is there does seem to be a little bit of a different edge to the group just in general. And maybe some of it is just their ability to play Bobby McMahon more and that he's just a bigger body and somebody who will throw it around. But there's just a, there's an added, a, a bit of attitude to the Maple Leafs since the Morgan Riley thing. And I like that. I don't know how long that stuff lasts, uh, if that's good that that happens for you in February, but I do think that it's happening. They do look like a little bit more of a group that will stick up for one another. But the major one is Lilligren and Brody, to me, look good enough. And Brody on his natural side looks improved enough that I, I think when Riley returns tonight, you might want to stretch this out and see what you have with this pairing moving forward against better competition. Yeah, I agree, but it's a little bit of a weird one because then you're probably looking at Riley playing with, like, William Lagason if he's healthy and ready to go, which is a little bit strange, but I also think, to your point, it would be hard to look at Brody and Lilligren, Lilligren in particular, because he's the one, like, Brody's minutes are going to be what Brody's minutes are regardless. Mm -hmm. But Lilligren's the one who you would be really taking the hit on. You'd be looking at him going, thanks for five games, back to the third pair. And I think that would be tough to swallow. I, I, I think you're right. Like I would want to continue to see Brody Lilgren ultimately with the goal that we're going to get Riley a partner of quality moving forward. So that's, that's the big question, right? Is what, what is quality to you when it comes to Morgan Riley? Because the, the most success that he's had was last season, the playoffs and it was with Luke Shen, a guy that when he was initially brought in, we all thought was going to be this team's seventh defenseman and that a big part of it was he's got experience. He'll be around these guys, but he's never going to make a peep if you have to sit in the, in the, in the media box. Yeah. So it's a good question. It also depends on the market too. I mean, the sad part is, is the top defenseman available is left-handed. So you can't like, you couldn't view him necessarily as a Riley partner. You would just view him as adding a quality defenseman to a defense core that generally lacks quality. So, you know, it would, it would be good for the future, but it might lead to some question marks this year, if you know what I mean. Cause then you'd be sitting there going, all right, well, and we're talking about Hanfin, obviously. Mm-hmm. So he would have to go on the left. And then I guess, do you keep, you know, push Brody back on the right where to me, he wasn't nearly as good and Lilligren, you know, on the right, and then you have the Benoit McKay pairing, or do you keep that pairing together and just get Riley a right-handed defenseman, but those defensemen aren't as good. So I think to your question, a few things, right? So part of, part of, I think what was successful with that Riley Shen pairing is 
that Brody McCabe pairing last year took the really tough assignments. I mean, they weren't that good in them, but it did free up Riley and Shen a little bit to be more offensive, which Riley is generally speaking great at doing. So I think that helped the cause. And I think when you look at the current defense, I don't think they have that kind of pairing. Like I like Benoit McCabe. I don't know if you're looking at those guys and saying you're getting 20 against Pasternak potentially in the first round. I mean, I wouldn't, I would be worried to see that matchup. I don't think you would look at Brody and Lilgren and say the same thing. So it's going to have to be defense by committee. And so I think Riley will need a little bit of a better right-handed partner in order to facilitate that. Like the obvious fit is obviously Chris Tanev. I mean, in, in the sense that he's a penalty killer, he's right-handed, he's, hangs back a bit more defensively, which would make sense stylistically with Riley. But it just makes it, you know, the price is is high right now. And it seems to be a game of chicken. And that makes things very difficult for, you know, if True Living is going to essentially buckle and pay up or if, you know, like you said, like they're going to start playing better teams now and, if it doesn't go well against them, I could see him looking and being like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah, so there's there's a few things to this in my mind. One is, okay, if you believe the, the Brody-Lilligren thing is worth taking a longer look at, then that would be, to me anyways, a great thing for Calgary. They would be thrilled because now all of a sudden, the idea of Toronto paying a first-round pick for Chris Tanev sounds far more appealing if they go, you know, the defense by committee thing, but maybe you could make a first pairing of Morgan Riley and Chris Tanev with a, a split duty sort of second pairing of having TJ Brody bump down with a Lilligren who works, and then a third pairing that everybody likes, especially slotted properly in that role, right? McCabe with Benoit as your third is phenomenal. Like, I, I don't know how many groups around the NHL would be able to look at that and say, yeah, we, we've got that as our third pairing. That That is really, really, really appealing. The price is impossibly difficult to swallow for me. I, I hate the idea of giving up first-round picks for rental players, um, you've seen how it's operated in the past. It hasn't been overly successful for this team. Um, I, I like the idea of potentially re-signing Chris Tanev, but again, he's a 34-year-old. There's like there's lots of drawbacks to this thing, but that's sort of now the the highest upside of this, and that to me is why if you're tree living in your Keefe, I, I would want to get on the same page, and I would want to see a little bit more of this and go, yep, I, I, maybe that is the highest ceiling move out of all of it. That being said, the counter would be, all right, you don't want to get in the Tanev stuff, Maybe you can still kind of have your cake and eat it too a little bit and set your sights on a lesser defenseman. Go out and find this year's Luke Shen. And I wonder if you've thought about any of those kind of names. Like a name that basically is Luke Shen light. You put them with Morgan Riley. You're hoping that it works out, but you know you don't have all the chips in the middle because you didn't use a ton of assets to acquire this player. So I do. There's, There's one guy in particular that I actually quite like. He's not like Shen in terms of he's not massive and like a huge hitter or anything of that nature, but he's right-handed. And I think he's a little bit probably more feisty than, than people probably give credit for. And I think, so it's, it's Alex Carrier on Nashville. Mm. And I think a lot of people look and, and he's listed at five eleven. So I think people just automatically dismiss that and they dismiss him as a player without really being familiar with his game. I think there's a lot there that kind of fits the Leafs bill on the little bit of the cheaper end of things, you know, so obviously he's right-handed. He's only 27. It's been to you a know, couple he's cups. A pending, right? Like uh, he's a pending UFA. 
Mm-hmm. He has some playoff experience with Nashville. So, you know, if you can, you know, acquire that kind of player at a cheaper cost and extend him, it sort of reminds me of something kind of like what Winnipeg did with Dylan DeMello, where they got him from Ottawa for a third-round pick mm-hmm. and then ended up extending him. And they've, they've gotten really good years out of DeMello. And they've had some good teams that have, like, generally gone south because of, like, the disasters they've had at forward. But they've definitely milked good minutes and good value out of Dylan DeMello, this year included, through essentially the heart of, like, his remaining 20 years and, like, early 30s, which kind of aligns with Carrier as a guy who also, you know, I think he's a little bit, he's around the 200-game mark of his career, so I think there's a little bit more room to go for him. Mm-hmm. What I like is, you know, he, last year, Nashville was sixth in the league in the penalty kill. He, was, he played, like, two minutes per game on it, so he's been part of successful penalty killing units. He's, uh, you know, as we've kind of seen with Simon Benoit, he's like that, feisty kind of French Canadian a little bit Mm -hmm. um, in terms of how he'll get involved. Like I really like him. I think, I think people again are very dismissive because of his height, but he moves the puck. Well, he gets involved in the game. Like his rookie season was awesome. He had like over 30 points uh, as a D man. He was paired with Matias Ekholm, who's of course an excellent partner. So that helps. But all that to say is if you're looking for a cheaper guy potentially and so it's like it goes back to like why would Nashville even trade this guy then? Mm. Like beyond being a pending UFA, they already have like four defensemen under contract for next year. Dante Fabro is a restricted free agent. They're about to hit get hit further with like cap um, recapture penalties on like the Matt Duchesne buyout. Like the, like their cap space is is dwindling. So all that to say, like he kind of fits the bill to me as like a right-handed defenseman who I think has like some level of quality to him that even if he doesn't work necessarily with Morgan Riley, like if it's not like a perfect fit, like he's going to fit with some, like they have three four right now, left-handed defensemen and three of them are ready for next year in Riley McCabe and Benoit's and RFA. Like he's going to fit with somebody. Dude, it's genuinely one of my favorite things is about the Leafs with all these left shot D and, and the TJ Brody going to his natural side thing. Cause we've been so accustomed to the idea of he can play the right side, right? They, that's always the verbiage. He can play on the right side and you're like, right. Of course he can. Of course he can. <laughs> is he better there? No. And then this happens and we're all like, this is such an incredible find. What a revelation that a guy playing on his natural side looks better, right? Looks a little bit more confident jumping up into the rush and shooting the puck and, and playing it. Uh, and it's, it's everyone's better on their strong side. Of course, like just naturally. I don't care who you are. You're just, it's, it's easier. That's it. And so we, we watch this stuff and I go, Oh, right. This, this matters. It, I don't know if it mattered to the degree of when the, I think the problem is, is that for leaf fans and media and all these, you know, observers of the team that have been around this core is that when Babcock came in, it felt like such an emphasis, right? Even though they did have Ron Hainsey, but it felt like such an emphasis that people went, well, is there a, you know, a point of delineation here where, or, or uh, a point where you start to lose on this, where you're, you're overemphasizing the handedness and not bringing in enough of the talent. And it seems pretty clear to me, yes, they, they, they need more balance on their blue line. They need another right-handed shot. Seeing two guys, Lilligren and Brody, playing better, yes, is a strength of competition thing, but it is a guy playing on his natural side. The question that I have off of this to you is like, okay, so carry it. I don't mind that. I know he kills penalties for Nashville on their first unit. I don't know how good of a penalty killer he is. 
Uh, I don't watch enough Nashville to have an assessment on this or look over their, their penalty kill numbers. But I think some of the decision that you're making on this, if you're looking for that right shot guy that you're at least trying with Morgan Riley, is based or uh, is predicated on the idea of what we've seen from TJ Brody over these last five games is, is not just a blip. This isn't just a strength of competition thing that we actually are seeing someone who can actually elevate his game to a different level. Yeah, I mean, he had a really nice assist. Like, it gets lost because there are just so many things that actually happened in last night's game. Like, he had a really nice assist on Bobby McMahon's goal to open the scoring. Like, he also just... created a second goal, the one that goes off of Matthew's chest by being in the mix, right? <laughs> it's a more, it's yeah. a, it's a play by Marner, of course, but he's pinching, and that's not something that we've that we see when he's on the other side. No, he's like he's really awkward actually getting the puck on his offside, whereas. McCabe, for example, is actually seems to really like it. Like he, so he had the goal a few games ago, just off the the side Mm -hmm. and against Anaheim, like that was a bomb. We see him take that kind of shot now, probably like four or five times. Like he looks really comfortable with that body turned, you know, you're facing the boards, not the net kind of shot. Like he looks really comfortable with it. TJ Brody looks like he wants nothing to do with it when he has the puck on a stick on that side of the ice. And McCabe was kind of developed this little like 360 move on his backhand, which is actually easier to do than if you're on your forehand. So he, like, he's an example of a guy who who actually seems to kind of like the benefits, at least offensively, of playing on your offside. Brody, on the other hand, you're right. Like, he definitely doesn't want to like pinch down. He's not like a one timer guy. He, you know, he's often just. It's like, you know, he takes the shovel out and just with his backhand, like flips it up the wall because there's not much else to do. But you look at the assist last night and he's, he's holding it. He's holding it. He's waiting. He's, you know, it's on his forehand the entire time, which is what he's starting to do on the breakouts too, on the left, right? Where he's like using his body properly to like shield the puck and like hold on to it for an extra second before making a real play on his forehand, which is like, what you want TJ Brody doing. Like he's good at moving the puck and leading a breakout and kind of taking charge in that sense. Mm-hmm. So on his right side, that's just like often that's just not possible. It, it's definitely not possible on a heavy four check because you just have to turn your body too much. So then what are you forced to do? You're forced to either you have a play right at, you know, in the middle of the ice because on your offside, you can easily sort of headman that. But anything up the wall, he's just throwing it up the wall at that rate. So I just I think you're just seeing like the like how much easier it is to play your strong side and we're seeing it kind of play out in TJ Brody. Like we're all just living it, you know, he's a living embodiment of how much easier it is to play your strong side. And we saw that with Dion Phaneuf a while ago, right? When he went to Ottawa, like it probably added at least a year to his career, just going to the left side. And like he was there when they went to the Eastern Conference Finals. Yep. Um, how important is it though for the blue liner that you do bring in that they are a plus penalty killer to you? I think it's really, I, I think their penalty kill is a problem. I think yeah. it's probably the biggest problem going with the team right now. Like their penalty kill is legitimately bad. And I got scored on again last night. It was just like, it like, and they're just giving up quality. It, it feels like their penalty kill is basically like whether the other team, like I you could say this for every power play, but it's like whether they score, it like has nothing to do with the least penalty kill. It's just like, does the power play bury the chances that they're continually creating or do they not? And like, do the Leafs maybe counter with like some offense 
than like potentially a shorthanded goal now with their guys. But, you know, like you kind of go back to that Anaheim game, the Leafs outclassed them in everything except the penalty kill. Like Anaheim was zipping it around. It really just felt like a matter of time until they scored the game before that with Philly. They tie the game on the power play. It really just felt like a matter of time until they scored. The Leafs killed off the first one, but you knew kind of once they got the second one, I was like, I don't think they have two in them. And they didn't. They didn't even come close. Arizona scored again. It's like, it's, I, I don't know how their penalty kill has got to this point because it's the same coach that they've had on the penalty kill the past few years. I know they've had some personnel come in and out, but it really shouldn't sink to the level that it has. It's just been really uncoordinated. Like you watch like camp and Martin who played on the penalty kill together for years and like they're both taking routes to the puck. And it's like the other guy is almost looking at whoever's taking the route to the puck and like has no idea where to go. Mm. Yeah. I like, I don't know how they're so disjointed in everything that they're doing. I definitely think that there's a personnel issue, especially on the blue line. The thing I can't figure out is the, the forward grouping stuff. I, I think Nylander has been a bit of a revelation this year for them on the PK. Um, yeah. I, I never thought it was going to work. I remember when they first started trying it, I went, what, what the hell is this? This feels almost forced. This, this feels yeah, like, like more oh, in time for these guys. Yeah, exactly. It was just a, it was almost to me a, all right, if you want to get paid, like one of these guys, then you got to be a penalty killer. Like Mitch Marner, you're going to compare yourself to Mitch Marner, then do this role. And then he did it like really effectively. It's sort of, to me anyways, been a, uh, in all the Nylander discussions that we've had, that's probably been left off more than anything else, right? Every single Nylander conversation, no one has brought up the, the penalty kill. I also think it's harder to sort of assess what every single person is doing on a penalty kill, like in, in general, um, especially if, you know, it doesn't get the chance. There's just all these different factors that end up happening. But I think the one thing for sure is, and this is sort of the the main uh, focus of this segment is all right. You're trying to piece together a Leafs blue line and it's been the biggest focus. And forever and ever, we've just had this one theory of go out and get a, a big stud with term that helps push some people down and also gives you some balance looking forward to next year. And no one wants to just end up getting a rental and then losing that rental for nothing and, or whatever, losing that big asset because they're so depleted when it comes to what they have in their future coffers, all this different stuff. But to me, the one thing from the stretch is if you want to go for the higher ceiling play, but also try to, you know, the gambling term is the middle of something, right? Especially based on this market. Of course, I wouldn't mind if the Leafs pushed bigger assets in to get that awesome right-hand defenseman that slots in perfectly and is the right fit for Riley and is there for the future, all that stuff. It's that, that seems like such a hypothetical to me. I don't really see that happening. The reality to me seems to be more of, can you find a solid right shot D who might be able to replicate the Shen experience and also improve your power play and then allow yourself to have that flexibility with the other four guys uh, on your blue line outside of Riley to continue to experiment whether or not there's a higher ceiling with the rest of them. Yeah. And I think, I think too, in terms of some of the Riley chatter that we'll hear quite a bit over the next little while. And that penalty kill part's important, but they also really need what Riley does offensively. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in the, in the playoffs, you saw it, like he was a driving force for them and playoffs is tight. Like that's just the nature of playoffs. Teams are more detailed. They're, they back check harder. They check more often. Like there's not a lot of space. And really when you look at their defense, as it currently is constructed, which I think was a, is a really big and important point given the past five games they played is 
they really didn't need a ton of offense. Like there was a ton of space for them to create things, right? Like you look at, like I just praised TJ Brody for the pass to Bobby McMahon on the goal. And like, I'm not trying to take away anything from it, but like TJ Brody had acres of time. Like it was unbelievable how much time he had to like, just wait for Bobby McMahon to basically get to the net. Like that's not happening in the playoffs. What Riley, I think, really brings them is that ability to get shots through from the point. And mm. I don't think anyone else on the team can do that right now. No. Like, I, Timothy Lilligren's skilled enough, but, like, he doesn't – he just – like, I don't know. He's just jittery. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's, here's what I will tell you. Uh, the biggest problem with all this theorizing that I have of, A, the pairings and all this different stuff is – as, as good as Lilligren has looked, and it was great seeing him back check yesterday and throw the body around and look strong. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> it's hard to trust him. It well, is, it, it I, is, I have a is. track record of multiple years now of him getting into the playoffs and the playoff hockey looking different and his biggest weaknesses becoming glaring in those moments, right? So it's a lot of trust for him, but eventually it's sort of a, a sink or swim scenario with this player. And if you're the Leafs and you want to know if he's a, a real piece of your, your team moving forward, I think that this is maybe the year. And if, if this continues, this is what I'm saying. You got to keep playing with TJ Brody. Now you got to keep trusting him and do what you said that to me, the balanced approach of having all three pairings be decent, but not having one where you go, wow, that's just an incredible, that's the perfect pairing. I, I, that's the most realistic solution to me moving forward. That, that's the most logical outcome, and that's the best shot that you have. So see what you get. See what, see what you get with Lilligren over this next stretch. And if you find out that maybe, you know, or burns you in the playoffs, it's not like they haven't tried that with other guys. Like, I, I don't see a scenario where it ends up being perfect anyways. So, yeah, um, that's just, just I, where I'm I at with this too, stuff. I think, too, like, it's, it's, it's good to note and, like, as part of the discussion. So, like, if this was – if this was year six of Kyle Dubas, mm-hmm. I would have very different expectations of where, like where I think the team would need to go almost in some sense, because like you can't like six years, you like you, you know, with this group, like you have to go to like a conference finals or something like it's crazy not to, but kind of from like my shoes currently with, and people might not agree. Like they'll probably just look at the ages of Matthews and Marner and whatever, who I still don't think are like that old, like not old enough to preclude you from kind of just seeing how this goes is, I would be okay going into the playoffs kind of to your point, not just with Timothy Logram, but it's like, let's see what Pontus Holmberg does. Let's see what Matthew Nyes does mm-hmm. on line one. Let's see Nick Robertson in the lineup every night. Let's see Bobby McMahon in the top nine. And like, if I'm Brad tree living, like I know people don't want to hear like, this is year one for him, like him sitting there and just being like, I'm going to go in and like patch things up. So we don't have like, you know, William Lagason on yeah. like, you know, playing with Morgan Riley and giving them like a good fighting chance. But then by and large, just looking at the young guys and being like, okay, let, like, let me see what you can do. And then reevaluating in the summer. I would be okay with that. I'm not saying they'll win the cup or anything, but I'd be okay with that. I, I, I'm the same boat. There's been, there, there's like, I, Myrtle and I talk about this all the time. He's very much in camp by and be very aggressive. And, you know, I saw Kipper talking about it yesterday on real Kipper and born where they were entertaining the idea of, uh, like using Easton Cowan as a trade chip. And I went, I, it, it just doesn't feel like that year to me. And I'm not feeling that urgency. Like you just re-signed William Nylander to a, a record contract extension. You just re-signed Austin Matthews. Like, yeah, I know that these timelines shrink and you, I'm, I'm not saying punt on the year, but it almost like this confusion where you say, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to give up my first round pick or my top prospect. And people go, you're punting, you're punting. It's like, why, why is that punting for the Leafs? But for other teams, you know, I don't hear that in the conversation. Like, I don't, 
Uh, Where's the talk about uh, right now, let's say Colorado pushing in every single thing to try to win a Stanley Cup. I'm not seeing that. And I know it's a media difference, but it is strange to me that that is the mentality right now. Like Toronto either needs to take a big swing or else they're essentially telling this core, we don't care if you win. It's wild. It's, it's truly crazy stuff. And look at, and look at Florida. I mean, everyone kind of talks about, you know, Bobrovsky or Kachuk mm-hmm. and like making that swing and, and that kind of component to their run. Mm-hmm. A big part of their run was just really Anton Lundell and A2 Lesterinen and like emerging in the yeah. playoffs. Like they were excellent. Like that was a really, like, that was the best third line to me in the playoffs. And Lesterinen and getting hurt for the Stanley Cup finals to me, like cooked them completely mm-hmm. and Kachuk obviously. But like when, when those, like when he got hurt, like the third line was like bad. They had to move up. I think Brian Lomberg at the time, like it, like the domino effect was immediate for them. And like Anton Lundell has been scored a great overtime winner this week against Ottawa. Like they, like they had young guys emerge, like, you know, if it were to happen, like Matthew Nyes is the kind of player who's like good enough that like, were he to emerge and we're starting to see signs of it. Like he just had a six game point streak. And, you know, if you just allow that to continue to happen, it, like I, to me, that's not punting. Like it might not work out, but it's not like you're going in with like a really like he's not an undermanned kind of player. Like he's not out. He's not playing out of his depth. Like mm-hmm. he's fast and skilled enough to like he doesn't look out of place alongside Matthews Marner. He might need more time to put it all together, but he's not like this is like that's not a charity spot in the lineup for him. Totally agree. Hey, I uh, know you got to run. Thanks for the time as always, brother, and appreciate the insight. Thanks for having me on, man. Cheers, dude. Anthony Petrelli, Maple Leaf Hot Stove. Really great writer. Um, really thoughtful guy. Breaks down tape extremely well. So, yeah, we're what now? We're two weeks away from the NHL trade deadline. And I don't know, it just it occupies a ton of space. It's a lot of oxygen on the NHL trade deadline and a lot of it centering the Leafs. But to me, and, and we'll see how this evolves over... Yeah, to me, the next couple of weeks, I've been on record, I said it yesterday with Myrtle, that I want to see what ends up happening over a tougher stretch. All the respect in the world for what the Leafs have accomplished, but I want to see if Bobby McMahon can play with force and be making an impact when they're playing an engaged Colorado team on a Saturday night versus can he take advantage of some bad teams with his effort level who are willing to check out early, knowing where their season is going during mid-February. It's just, I think it's a fair thing to wonder. A, a fair thing to want to see play out. But with the, but the blue line thing, them ha- not having more Riley, that, that's bang on what Petrelli just said. They need his offense. He's clearly their best guy. I don't know why we're confusing this as the Leafs are somehow better, but piecing together from yesterday's show, I think Myrtle's right. They probably play him too much. They lean on him too much. And this is sort of the, this is the, the Leafs opportunity to break away from some of the things in the past. Everyone can go, oh, well, it's the same. It's the same. It's the core four. You can't win with the core four forwards. You can't do it. Well, yeah, because you know what? They've done the same thing over and over, which is those five guys, the big guys on uh, the big five players on big ticket contracts, they've leaned on too much. Now over the stretches of some success, what have they done? They put Domi up on the second line. They've let him play with talent. They bumped Tavares down. They're, they're taking a different look with that. The blue line 
They're putting Brody on his, on his proper side. They've given Lilligren more of an opportunity. They're spreading the talent around. This team was never just going to be able to win with five players. It's not a basketball team. This wasn't the last dance. This wasn't supposed to be the Chicago Bulls. They need to be able to deploy more of their depth. And so maybe the solution for this team is just trying to sprinkle in a little bit more talent, a little bit more balance, right? To me, ideally today, the the ideal deadline for them would be a shot on a a winger, a left winger in particular. Uh, I wish Buchnevis wasn't just a rental or the price would be so high that the market was a little bit better, but uh, somebody like that who could play up and down your lineup. You know, they are going to get Callie Yarncroft back at some point, and that's going to really give them a boost. And McMahon being a find is huge, and Nye's playing better as of late is big, but I could I could still see them being very much in need of a quality left winger who, who could end up potting a big goal, but you don't pay a huge price for. And then going out and getting that right shot D, who can play stay-at-home style, who is reliable to get a puck out, who is reliable to make a smart play, and who can help you kill a penalty, who gives an uptick on that unit, but also allows you to spread the talent around by keeping Brody on his left side, keeping him with Lilligren, keeping a third pairing that looks studly, that looks genuinely perfect for the postseason in McCabe and Benoit, for this team anyways, and then having Riley with someone that we've always kind of been accustomed to with Warren Riley, a reliable stay-at-home guy, who he can play off of and isn't going to try to cheat. Spread the talent around. All of a sudden, you're looking like maybe you have three lines, and all of a sudden, you're looking like maybe you have three pairings. That, to me, seems more sensible and realistic than the idea of going out and making some huge Hannafin splash where you're pushing in a ton of assets, and then you put him on the left side, and all of a sudden, you go, Brody's back over to his right. And next season, you're presented with the idea of your top two guys being all, it just, yeah. It's fine. Wouldn't hate it. There's, there's pros to it. I don't think it's a stupid idea. It's a fine thought exercise. My guess is Hannafin goes south of the border. My guess is that the Leafs don't have enough pieces to make that work. And if they do, it's... It really is all in in a year where there's been a lot of signs that it shouldn't be an all-in year. Trending in the right direction, opportunity to prove that this is something with a little bit more weight than maybe it seems when they're beating up on the Arizona Coyotes and the St. Louis Blues. But that's, that's the key to me. Spread out the talent and inject it with a little bit more competency and especially with an eye towards your penalty kill that, that has struggled. Now let's see a couple of games where William Nylander plays with William Lagerson. Who cares? Let's see it. Can Sheldon Keefe continue to do a bit more of the look at the long game instead of just tightening up and going back to the ways that they've done it already before and the just only reliance on the same couple of guys? Let's just see. All right. Quick break. JJ Reddick drama. Schroeder returns. And the revolution against tipping continues. 
All right, wraps are back tonight. I think for a lot of people, frankly, I think that a lot of people are out there like with the 49ers in overtime where they don't really know the rules. They don't really know what's going on with the pick. They don't really know what's going on with the draft. And so the position of many, like I know this because people have reached out to me and they're going like, nice, good loss. Good loss. Tank, tank, tank. Which, again, I think it's fine. If you really do think the Raptors are going to take a big step forward next year and that the pick that they could convey to the Spurs would be somewhere from 15 to whatever, or that they tank again next year and keep kicking that pick down the road, fine. Like, yeah, I'm not... I don't think that it's moronic. I don't think that's a horrific take. But to me, the position I like is seeing the Raptors win, kick the pick over this year and have it over and done with and really know what you have moving forward with your rebuild and don't have multiple picks in a draft that you showed uh, you didn't really have a ton of interest in a year before, right? Okay, so there we are. There we are with that. I've said that a million times. But so for a lot of people, they're kind of looking like, who cares, Raptors tank, who cares, Raptors lose games. Who cares what happens this year? This year is a bit of a throwaway season. They're, they're trying to tank. They're, all you need to have is Scotty Barnes statistics. No. Th- that's, that's not it to me. This now, it's not everything. It's not going to be definitive in terms of the way that the Raptors develop or that there isn't going to be immense amounts of improvement moving forward for a very young team that has now a core with Quickly and Grady Dick and Scotty Barnes, all in the infancies of their careers. Of course, this isn't everything, so don't interpret it that way. But to me, this is, a, this is an important stretch for them. Scotty Barnes going into the All-Star break right before was eviscerated by Victor Wembanyama on his home turf. And fans and media and everybody who watched the team was frustrated. I don't think Barnes handled it particularly well with the media. And then I think he played a really good game against the Pacers. He went into the All-Star break, and guess what? The rest of the world took shots at him all weekend long. And Raptors fans always get uber defensive, and they over-personalize things when some stuff to me is just fun, some stuff is like a little over the top, whatever. But Scotty Barnes was the subject of some ire from people. They went, who is this guy at the All-Star game that is treating some of the activities this way? You heard it from Isola. I don't think that's an unreasonable take to think, hey, a guy who's there in his rookie year should probably, I don't know, care a little bit more that he's at the All-Star game. Now, nobody else did, so I don't want to single him out, but he's singled out because he's our guy. He's Toronto's guy. Scotty Barnes has been questioned for his effort now in a regular season game and then very publicly during All-Star weekend. People say, oh, or he has said, oh, it's because he cares too much. That's why sometimes he gets a little too emotional. He is young. I think that there's going to be growing pains. But to me, you want to see the effort level stay the same, and you want to see Barnes after this weekend where he's at an All-Star game come back and say, you know what, this is my team now. I was at that All-Star game, and the ways that we are going to improve is if I set the tone for my team. Can Scotty Barnes start to take that step in his development? Is he going to throw away this stretch? And just go into the offseason and then we're all going to play the young card and that we're going to go another year? Or are they going to show some significant signs of life? Because I want to see Barnes and Quickly play better together. I want to see Quickly look more consistent. I want to see the Raptors coalesce a bit more. I want to see them with 
more consistent effort and attitude. We've seen flashes where it looks damn good, even against the Thunder, right, before the Thunder came back. That Raptors team looked fun. They got up and down. They're making shots. They played with real energy. Stringing that together consistently has been difficult. And now you've got Dennis Schroeder in town right after all this stuff has happened, right after you've been questioned, right after you've been called out. When I'm called out, when people doubt me or question things about me, I genuinely want to, generally, sorry, want to prove them wrong. I generally want to try to stick it to somebody. And I'd like to see that from Scotty Barnes. I'd like to see them look at the Brooklyn Nets tonight and say, Dennis Schroeder was here and he basically laid it out multiple times, by the way, publicly, that this Raptors team wasn't it. That they didn't fight for one another. That they didn't have the greatest chemistry. That the effort wasn't there night in, night out. And considering that they traded him for nothing, flat out nothing other than to get his money off the books for next year, which how difficult during the offseason would it have been to move Dennis Schroeder's money? I'm guessing not that hard. Uh, An expiring contract of a veteran point guard who's proven time and time again that he has a real place in the league, can provide some bench scoring, can give you some defense, can get to the basket, good culture guy. Like, yeah, um, pardon me if I think that that's a little strange. They got Dennis Schroeder out of town. And now you're Scotty Barnes. You're looking over at the other side and saying, yeah, you didn't like it here. You didn't think that we could be winners. You didn't, you didn't see that dog in us. Yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to prove you wrong tonight. It's the Brooklyn Nets. This isn't the Super Bowl. But it's a step. And that's what I want to see from the Raps moving forward here. Let's see quickly play with more structure. Let's see the Raptors give a more consistent effort. Let's see Scotty Barnes signs of taking more ownership of the team. Let's see it. To start games, let's see in the first half, rather than just exploding in the second, which is kind of the Barnes MO this year. So let's see you guys step up. Let's see you guys win some games. Let's see you guys kick that pick over the San Antonio Spurs and go into next year with a little bit more momentum, a little bit more certainty, and a little bit more feeling like people know what they have in this group. Like, Quigley's going to get paid. Quickly's going to get big-time money. And some people, you know, I've had off-air conversations where we're talking about the differences between 22 and 25 million. But as we saw with the Jakob Pertl thing, usually tends to be the, the player ends up getting what they want here. And for a guy like Quickly, he's probably, despite being an RFA, gonna, he's going to get a hefty contract. Part of the reason that the Knicks ended up moving him is because they thought that he... He was their sixth man that he was going to be blocked by Brunson and they didn't view that as a guy that was worth paying over $20 million. The Raptors are going to be making the gamble of, no, we think that you could be more. If you're not blocked by somebody, we'll pay you more than $20 million. But that backfired with Jakob Pertl. That went the wrong way. They were wrong. Jakob Pertl is a really quality big in the NBA. He ain't a $20 million center. He's certainly not a $20 million center on term. You can replicate what Jakob Pertl does for you for cheaper, and it certainly didn't need to cost you a first-round pick. And now the question with Quickly is going to be, hey, was it worth costing you OG and Anobi to go get a guy that might end up being a backup point guard? What you want to find out before giving him the $20 million plus is does it start to look better? That's the thing that sucked with Pertl is that he came to town, the Raptors look better heading into the playoffs or the play-in game, sorry. They did improve. He, he brought an element that they desperately needed, much like Quickly does with the shooting, the ability to pull up and shoot off the dribble. But you would like to see the team take a bit of a more meaningful step with him that you say, hmm, okay, you know, this doesn't have 
potential to go really south. I, I think RJ Barrett is supposed to be important on this team. I don't want to feel like he's the only consistent player on the team offensively. So yeah, wraps. Can you continue to do some of the things that have been great this year, like the ball movement while adding more effort, better consistent defensive performances and a little bit more winning. And especially when you're on your home floor against another crappy team, like the Brooklyn Nets. Anyway, who did just fire their coach. So they'll play with some fire. I'm sure tonight, maybe are the uh, Milwaukee bucks playing with fire right now. I hope so. They are better the, be. Are the Milwaukee Bucks playing with fire since they fired their coach and they keep dropping games? And yeah, their coach is going on the uh, the I didn't do it tour. <laughs> Dame didn't mention Giannis in his top five. Yeah. Giannis doesn't watch basketball, apparently. Yeah, quite a weekend for them. I'm telling you, the biggest the biggest issue with the Bucks is not Doc Rivers talking to the media or throwing players on the bus or Damian Lillard's defense. It's the fact that they don't have reliable basketball players outside of those two. Like, Brooke Lopez is older. He's taken a step back. He's still very good, but he's not the Brooke Lopez of last year who's in depoy. And Chris Middleton, same thing. Can't rely on him to be the Chris Middleton of old, especially defensively. Like that part of his game is all but evaporated. And then after that, you're talking about, you know, you had the Malik Beasley experience as, as a Laker fan. It's pretty... I mean, at least he's hitting threes for the Bucks, but yeah, sure, he can't they, guard no, anyone. They, they have guys that can hit some threes, but yeah, Beasley and Connaughton and gets it, it. They get real thin, real fast. That team, one guy gets in a foul trouble, or one guy misses a game because of an injury, and they look sparse when it comes to talent. So, yeah, I, I'm just not a I'm not a Bucks fan right now. I don't think that they're going to all of a sudden just turn this thing around and look like a juggernaut in the regular season. Maybe I'm wrong. I do think that there's still potential for them to be better in the playoffs because of the Dame scoring thing. Um, Giannis keeping it close that they're good enough to battle with those two guys, and then all of a sudden crunch time scoring is improved. But yeah, as of right now, I don't have a lot of faith in pretty much anybody in the Eastern Conference. Um, not unless Joel Embiid can get healthy and look good going into it, and. Boston can shore up some of their late game stuff and keep Chris Porzingis healthy. Because I think if they lose Chris Stapps, they're screwed. And he is very much a, an injury wild card. But I thought this, this stuff was pretty interesting with JJ Redick and everybody's weighing in because this is what we do now. There's like a sports media beef that's out there. It hasn't come to Canada yet. We've avoided it. We're, but Canada's always a couple of years behind the States when it comes to media. So maybe we're only a couple of years away from infighting, uh, at the station, maybe I should, who should I start a feud with? The thing is about a good feud is you got to punch up and you got to take a shot at somebody people really care about. So, yeah, but you got to, you got to say something where they'll actually engage back. Right? Like I can't try to start a feud with Elliot Friedman and he'll just ignore me. I'll just go. Yeah, no, uh, you're, you're too small time. There's nothing. I'm not responding. The move for me is to just ignore. I think I got to go at Kipper maybe because Kipper, Kipper would take shots at me. <laughs> There's no doubt. Uh, maybe eventually Leafs talk will split and I'll, I'll, like, I'll start passive aggressively being like, actually, Sam and I weren't friends for a very, very long time. It was really bad between the two of us for a long time. Start to unveil drama. But we all like commenting on the American sports media drama. This is really seemingly to do clicks. Um, used to just be Barstool Sports that did this where they pitted their employees against one another and now it's ESPN does it and Fox does it and everybody goes at one another. 
And it's, it's big business, it's big clicks. But the thing I find interesting about the J.J. Reddick thing is he said yesterday pretty publicly that it's, isn't it our job as media to educate the fans on the sport and not do narrative talk? I went, J.J. Reddick to me is hitting the tipping point of where it was the same with Tony Romo. When he was first coming in, people went, ooh, this is insightful and this is different and there's some interesting stuff here. And now it's getting annoying. It really is. I can't, like, I think J.J. Reddick's a smart guy. I think he's got a lot of interesting stuff to say. I think it was a little overstated, in my opinion anyway, the whole Doc Rivers saved your career thing. This guy had a very long career. He was a stud at Duke, and he, was, he could always shoot the basketball. Did he have good years with the Clippers? Yeah, he absolutely did. Um, I'm the world's biggest Jamal Crawford fan. In the moment, I never thought, like, oh, they should be starting Jamal Crawford over J.J. Reddick when they blew that series lead and with the Clippers. Um, but I, what, I guess what really bothers me at times with some of the, the, the dudes who come in, I like to be educated as a fan. I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people appreciate those posts. You have to understand that that's never going to be more popular than debates about who's going to get traded for or hot takes. Like that's just the way, first of all, your beef is with social media algorithms more so than anything else, J.J. Reddick. But yeah, there's, of course, there's a place for that content. But I, I don't like the contempt guys get. They, they take these media jobs and then they have contempt towards the media and try to still act as though they're outside of it or that they're bigger than that or that they're too smart for it or that, that they view it in the, the best possible light. It just eh, it becomes tiresome. And so I hope for J.J. Reddick's sake, because I think he has a lot to offer, that he stops getting in the, the feuds with people. And the, the Doc Rivers thing actually was awesome. The Doc Rivers thing was great. I don't mind that at all. That's a former player calling out his former coach. That's way better than me doing it. Like, pff, people were like Babcock in, or Sheldon Keefe. Huh, what do I know? What do I know? This is my opinion. Big dumb idiot. But when it comes from a guy who was coached by this player, that's super interesting. That's great content. But I hate that he turned that into, he's the guy who committed the crime, who does the thing, and then it blows up. And he's like, why are we even talking about this? This, this is a problem with our coverage is the way that we do these things. And why is it more popular that when I call out my former coach that it does more views than me on YouTube breaking down Zion Williamson dribble handoffs? Like, huh? We got to explain this to you? We got to break this down for you? You're going to show contempt? Towards the people that are clicking on this and listening to this and the network that is paying you money because of the thing you did? Enough, bro. Come on. what I say yesterday? Just a little bit more self-awareness. Quick break. Arden Zwelling in studio. Arden Zwelling is here a day before. You leave tomorrow, right? I do. Yeah. How'd you know that? Because I asked you. Oh, all right. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Dude, this happens Fair play. all the time when people... Uh, th- this is truly... Uh, a huge part of my life. People will go, how did you get that information? It's because yeah. I asked you a week ago and then you forgot. Yeah, I, I didn't even I, know I told you that. I think I have the best memory. Yeah? I, yeah. Uh, no, that's impressive. There's no reason for you to remember that. No, you there didn't was. need that information. No, it was. Because I said, when are you leaving for spring? Yeah. That's how the conversation started. Oh, yeah. I said, I want to get you in studio before you leave. This, this, is, yeah, this rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, this is why you're here. <laughs> right. It's the Got whole it. premise. It really wasn't that <laughs> impressive. It really wasn't that impressive. The thing is, I'm going through that time now, that phase yeah. of like small talk with everybody where it's like, mm-hmm. when are you going down? Oh, where yeah. are you staying? Yeah. How long are you down there for? So I just like immediately just, you know, go into autopilot yeah. and just don't even remember those conversations happen. Well, plus you're so. probably trying to figure out things in your personal life in terms of how long you're going to be you know you got to work things up with the wife how long do you go for 
I'll be down there till the bitter end. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. So yeah. you're there, there, there. Yes. So yeah, you're figuring. What do you do? Do you you don't do? Do you hotel or do you do Airbnb? Uh, I hotel, oh. but I hotel with a uh, a, a kitchen, like a yeah, okay, you know, yeah. I was so that say, I can have somewhat a of a time. normal life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's nice though. Works just you know like I work. I want a kitchen. I'm like of course. It's not a you. nice hotel. Anything for you on field report? It's a uh, TV it's, guy. I, I don't even want to get. It's a residence in. No, yeah. uh, you know they're not paying you anything. It's not a nice hotel. <laughs> does that is it a nice pool? It has a pool. Yeah, I don't. Nice. You know, some people may have died in it. Right? Yeah, like recently. That's always funny when you look at a place and it says pool, but it doesn't have photos. Mm-hmm. And you go in with that, and you're like, "What is this?" Or the the pool photo is taken like from a weird, far away angle, and then you show up, and it's that, and you're like, "Oh no, this is actually a crappy, rusty gate. They clearly don't clean this every single day. No one's by the pool for a reason. Right. Uh, I think I'll pass." Or the photo was clearly taken in like 1998. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, that's that's actually that's the that's the big Airbnb move. Is yeah. it's like take the photos day one, and then you show up at the place, and it's like, "Oh yeah, this place is beaten up. You've had a thousand people here. You've had a a million people come through who didn't treat it like their own house." There's a billboard in the background of the photo that's like Step Brothers uh, in yeah. theaters now. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so you wrote this article uh, that I read. Is gap to gap uh, at Blue Jays camp. Spring's faux storyline starting to take shape. And you start this thing with uh, remember Greg Bird. And I went, I did enjoy that time. I did enjoy the, the Greg Bird narrative. And, and it, basically you're illustrating that we, we get way... We get way out of control with some spring training narratives and the idea that guys are really going to make camp and that the GM hasn't already figured out who's going to be on the team. But with this Blue Jays group, it, it actually does feel a little different just in terms of some of the back-end roster questions in comparison to years past. Like, they've got a ton of infielders. They brought in Escobar, and, you know, from your piece, I was kind of gleaning that you don't, like, you think he's a long shot. I read Shai's piece, though, and he was like, I think that they gave him some assurances to be here that he would be, like, a more of a contender for a roster spot. I, I wonder if this year actually is an actual season where jobs are on the line. Like someone could actually tilt the scales just enough to be able to grab a roster spot. I think he is a long shot mm-hmm. just based off of the performance last year. He sucked. Like, I can typically come in here. Frank the Tank calls him Easy Out Escobar. It's the best. <laughs> he has a song and everything. It's like, I really hope we get it just so that we yeah. get to sing that song. The usual thing that you'll make fun of me for is I'll be like, his results last year were terrible, but look at the underlying stuff and yeah. look at the peripherals. I can't even do that with him. Yeah. The underlying stuff is no, not. stunk. It's not good either. The yeah. curfews are not good either. He's a good culture guy, though, apparently. Um, oh, 100%. He's hilarious. Uh. Look up his mic'd up videos from mm. the Apple TV games. He is, like, he is a riot. Um, so, like, I, from my perspective, mm-hmm. I'd love to have him around. But mm. when I look at the amount of, as you said, middle infielders, third baseman types who are above him and already on the 40-man roster, you're going to need some sort of a 40-man condensing trade or some sort of an injury for him to really get in there. Okay, so on this point, though, I'm still surprised that they never got rid of Espinal. I, mean, I, I feel like that shoe... Like, do you think that the door is closed on that? Because, I don't think it was there for them, right? Like, yeah. the move wasn't there. Yeah, but know? the move was just to go, here you go, somewhere else, well, goodbye. cash. Yeah. Nah, he's still got value, right? Yeah. And they don't want to have him just, like, you know, non-tender him or DFA value, him really? or... 
uh, you know, he's he's an all-star. <laughs> Former all-star. Yeah. I think everybody's an all-star now, honestly. <laughs> we just had a lot of obscure all-stars over the years, but he definitely fits the bill for that. Do you see what Merrifield the other day yeah, in Philly? Yeah, yeah, I was an all-star, was an all-star last year. Last year. <laughs> went, yeah. yeah. Uh, you were. <laughs> you were. Yeah, you went yeah. to that game. You went to that game and you were hot to start the season. Yep. The second half of that year was, you know, not not as impressive. And the fielding last year was probably a bit of an underrated story in terms of, uh, yeah, the one guy that you didn't love in the infield on defensive. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Anyway, um, okay. So, so, but with Espinal, like, look, he's still, what, 28. He has mm-hmm. shown some things at the big league level. Um, like I would take Espinal this year mm-hmm. and what he's making over whatever you guaranteed Escobar that he would make mm-hmm. if he makes the club. And we don't know that figure yet. We know for Vogelbach, it's 2 million bucks, mm-hmm. right? But for Escobar, we don't actually know what the freight would be, what the cost would be. But I like Espinal going into 24 more than I would like Escobar. You think either of those guys makes the roster? I don't think Escobar does. I think Espinal has no. Sorry, a path. Espinal, yeah, but, no, but I meant Vogelbach. No, yeah, I don't think so. It, it's hard, right? Like what he is so limited in the way that you can deploy him, mm-hmm. right? You can't use him against lefties. You can't use him in the field. You can't use him on the bases. So he's like a pure platoon DH bat for your bench, which is like an interesting luxury to have mm-hmm. for like a super versatile young team. But the Blue Jays have a 39-year-old whose primary position is DH, and they got a 34-year-old in right field who gets a DH day once a week. And they've got a player at first base who has battled physical ailments over the last couple of years and could probably use an extra DH day here and there. Mm-hmm. So I just don't know that it's a great fit for the Blue Jays. I think Vogelbach's bat is like legit big league bat, and mm-hmm. I think he could go somewhere and get 250, 300 plate appearances and have like a 110 OPS I was just going to say, you know, he reeks of that, right? Like yeah. He reeks of the Blue Jays let him go, and then people on Blue Jays Twitter never letting the idea out of their minds of they could have had this guy for $2 million and look what he's doing with this other team where he actually has more opportunity. I just don't think it's a great fit for the yeah. Jays roster as presently constructed. Agree. Agree. You know? Agree. Uh, but that's what ends up happening when your big off-season acquisition is Justin Turner at 39 years old. And say Justin Turner gets hurt in camp. Or say Vlad gets yeah. hurt, right? Then like all around. of a sudden things yeah. change. Then, say then, Espinal gets yeah. hurt, David Schneider gets hurt, right? Like all of a sudden things change for Escobar. Mm-hmm. It's just another layer of insurance. Sure. Right? And you do a solid to those players. You give them a great training environment. And okay. Eden, you give them plate appearances. Yeah. So that's it to you is this is injury insurance, having those two guys around more than it actually is. Let's see what they've got left in the tank. Maybe they make the team because I don't want to make too big of a deal of this, but I did have the thought maybe a week ago of when when they first got these guys. All right. They always say the whole um, there's no such thing as a bad minor league deal, right? Or yeah. the, there's no such thing as a bad spring training invite. But Unless it's like Trevor Bauer. <laughs> I got different thoughts on that. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not with the consensus on that one. Uh, but... I don't think he's someone you want to bring into your environment right now. I don't think you want to invite that circus in. Yeah. Um, you, know? you don't want him going around the clubhouse filming YouTube videos right now when sure. you're trying to win a championship. You're you trying to keep everybody on the same course. You don't want that. I think for the league minimum money to get a former Cy Young winner who was just proven to be uh, innocent, uh, yeah, I would think about something like that. Anyways. Um, then when you cut him loose, you don't want him yeah. going on podcasts yeah, and no, saying all this I, stuff. Listen, about I understand there's drawbacks. Players. I understand there's drawbacks, but I uh, yeah, I I will say that. It's yeah. not worth that, X. Sure. So you say. So you say. Anyway, uh, 
is there at least a little bit of a risk of when you bring these older guys in that you're taking stuff away from younger guys? In terms of like playing time opportunity? Yeah, like, you know, you're playing, and I know they play a billion of these Grapefruit yeah. League games and they got split squads. and uh, But just in terms of like attention you get and coaching you get and plate appearances, because you said it, you're like, you're giving these guys plate appearances. That yep. does come at the expense of somebody. Oh, yeah. This is a team that has not really developed well over the last few seasons. I don't know how integral spring is to the development of players. I'm guessing that the seasons of games is far more important. But yeah, I did I did have that thought when they brought those guys in is like, all right, what 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 is where does that take away from? Does that take away from something? Not really. You play yeah. so many spring games, you have so many split squad situations. Mm-hmm. Like you're right, Vogelbach's gonna play a ton and Escobar will probably play a lot too. That's but what I, mean. I know Vogelbach's been promised like a lot of plate appearances. But and- that's it. The only way to incentivize these guys to show up is if you're saying you're gonna get a lot of run here. You get a lot of time, yeah, in our games and you mm-hmm. get to train in our environment, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're a minor league free agent, you're choosing between the Blue Jays and their facilities and like the Orioles and their facilities. You're choosing the Blue Jays. It's just a better environment to train. They're just better resources and stuff. You know, all the, you know, and I know that people roll their eyes, but mm-hmm. like all the stuff about the player development complex that everyone's heard about, mm-hmm. players are like want those resources. Players are attracted to that. The biggest, the only win from the Shohei Otani sweepstakes for Toronto was that people really got to understand how beautiful that place is. <laughs> it's like what that place actually looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and the, but this is what that piece that you were referencing earlier was about: is mm-hmm. that we spend six weeks during spring training, like chasing our tails over these edge roster players, over these Greg Birds, over the out of options guy. Mm-hmm. Remember the year when it was like, what are they going to do with Dalton Pompey? He's out yeah. of options. They're going to expose him to waivers. He's a cop right now, listening to this, mm-hmm. right? Like, what are they going to do with Anthony and he won't Alford? Do podcasts. I hate it because I want to have him on the show and talk about this. <laughs> He's out. He's out on it. What are they going to do with Anthony Alford? Are they going to yeah expose him to waiver someone else is going to get him he's still 24 he's got mm-hmm. so much potential he's like in korea now right like we spend so much time worrying about greg bird right mm-hmm. when he went back to the yankees people are outraged mm-hmm. this guy tore the cover off the ball all spring assimilated to the clubhouse blue jays had extra roster spots that year because of the pandemic he was like exactly what they needed in terms of a left-handed bat on the bench mm-hmm. they were super right-handed heavy I mean, everybody thought he was on the team, mm-hmm. except for the Blue Jays, who were like, we kind of think you're cooked. Turned out he was. He went back to the Yankees. Everyone was outraged. The Yankees released him. He plays in Australia now. He played last summer. He was playing in Quebec. Mm-hmm. He was playing indie ball. You, you want to see Greg Bird go up Auto Route 20? Mm-hmm. You can see him playing in Quebec mm-hmm. for Capitals. <laughs> you can see him. So I get the premise. And of course, there's going to be a million examples of guys that we wrote about, talked about, and discussed whether or not the merits of them based on spring numbers. To me, this is actually one of the more fun things about being a baseball fan, straight up, is looking at the teams during camp, and it's spring, you get the hope of the team, you get to have the idea of someone who... uh, Oh, who's this guy, you know? That's every baseball movie, is some guy shows up, and all of a sudden, the old grizzled manager is chewing, he's spitting tobacco, and he's looking at the young player going, this guy's opening eyes. We want to have those stories. Yeah, but that's and it. life isn't a movie. For sure. But but having those discussions and having those stories to me is actually a really fun part of baseball. It's a really fun part of spring because once you do get to the down to the regular season, we've been able to math this sport out to the point where there's not a ton of debates, right? Yeah. Like it, it doesn't, it, once you get a certain sample of a player, you're kind of like, well, this is the take. <laughs> like it's... And uh, our brains love stories, yeah. right? And our I, so I like some love, stories. They love narratives, yes. right? We love those shortcuts. So this is where I want to go. But it's with not you. reality, okay? But but what is the spring story to you, though? That you're going down there and saying, 
you know what, I actually, I'm really interested in how this plays out down here. How does Alec Manoa's stuff look? Yeah, okay. Bingo. How does his slider look? Yeah. How's his velo? Yeah. Like, that's a huge one, right? Okay. Like, it's how, been kind of quiet so far. In terms of like how the stuff looks? Everything. Yeah. I don't it's, know that he's like thrown, you yeah. know, in a fat, in an environment where we'd have access to it. Okay. Right? But I am saying, but that's kind of where I'm going with this is there's been already a little bit of buzz of Tiedemann where people are saying, oh my God, this guy looks amazing. And the players around him are going, this guy looks amazing. Yeah. There's been a lot of Bowden Francis might actually be better than people think buzz. Right. Right. And I just think it's interesting that so far, and maybe that's a setting expectation thing. That's a controlling the narrative thing. You're right. They haven't had a big opportunity to see him yet. That's going to happen further down the line. But you're, um, you're saying nothing to see here so far with Manoa based on my perception of what the narratives have been so far. Because I would just think that like with Vladdy's body, right? Yeah. You're talking to another bounce back guy who's super important to the team. We've had a billion things written about like, Look how good Vladdy looks. Look at the training that he's been doing. Oh, all of a sudden he's looking like he's swinging the bat better. Oh, Vladdy's going to maybe have a monster year. Buy Vladdy stock now. Vladdy's not upset at the baseball team about the arbitration stuff. Right. But the Manoa, it's just been... There was a lot of best shape of his life with no, Manoa. There was a great shape of his life, but we all know that that was only one little piece of the puzzle when it came to him bouncing back sure. next year. And sort of the implication to me was, hey, he's quote-unquote battling for a fifth spot. He's not. But he's not. He's the fifth starter. Yep. 100%. That's another until story Ricky we're going to tell looks, ourselves. Yeah, until Ricky Tiemann looks way better than him and maybe Brown Francis even looks better. What happens if he's the third guy? There's, it's just He'll still make it. So, Bowden Francis has options and Mitch White doesn't. So, the most likely thing yeah. that happens there is Mitch White's on the opening day roster and Bowden Francis is in Buffalo. Ricky Tiedemann... If Mitch White was 25% less handsome, would he be even a consideration <laughs> to be on this baseball team? I used throwing 97 at the end of the year last right. year. Look at his final H10 starts. God, Blake that... Murphy hopes so because he went, all, he went all out for Mitch to me when I was like, who? <laughs> he was this guy. He gets taken on waivers if you yeah. expose him to waivers. Right. Mitch White this year is in the position Bowden Francis was in last year. Think yeah. about it. Like what, four, five, six months ago, Mitch White was DFA'd. Yeah. He was on waivers. Anyone could have had him. They, you know, they, they send him back to Buffalo. Velo ticket the end of the year looked really good. Bowden mm. Francis did that a year ago. DFA'd middle of the year on waivers. Anybody could have had him. So he went back to Buffalo. Velo ticket the end of the year looked really good. Came in the spring and killed it. Mm-hmm. So Mitch White's on like that same trajectory. He has to go out there and do it. But mm-hmm. every, like everyone loves Bowden Francis right now. Who was talking about him a year ago? I was the only guy writing about how the Velo was no up way. and how he did that and how he went in the lab and all the stuff the Jays yeah. did with them and how this guy actually has potential. So. I just like how Bowden Francis last year just basically any situation they threw him in, he was good. He's so composed. That's it. He's it's so just, calm. He, yeah, that's it. He was just the the same uh, and maybe. Uh, I really don't mean this as a shot at Manoa, but it was so night and day in terms of the way Manoa looked, which was just pressing the entire, like every experience you had with Manoa. And then all of a sudden they threw Brown Francis in there. There's something to be said about no expectations, right? Because even the name is like a create a player name. It's it's like, it, it's a name that is almost created to be forgotten. Like, do you remember <laughs> Bowden Francis? Like right. that goes on a trivia list and you're like, oh, right. right. Bowden Francis from the 2023 season. He had a cup of coffee and then it was nothing else. But his year was just impressive. It was, oh, here's the guy that does the same thing over and over again. Whatever role they put him in, he seems to just do it fine. Wasn't spectacular, wasn't incredible, but was solid. And to me, that's kind of what you want from your fifth starter, right? Like you don't want the guy who's blowing up some starts and then showing like an extra bit of promise on the given night. Like I love the idea that he's versatile, but you're right. The, the options thing clearly makes sense with him. I just... I continue to wonder what it is going to look like if spring that story about Manoa yep. devolves into it doesn't look great. 
It would have to look pretty bad, right? Yeah. Like, you think about how much run the Blue Jays gave Manoa last year yeah. when he was literally the least effective pitcher in baseball. And we got all these crazy oh, stats about how, wow, nobody's ever thrown this many innings of, like, this type of ERA or this mm. type of exavilo and all that because pitchers who look like that typically don't get that amount of rope. Yep. Alec Manoa got a ton of rope last year when he, you know, meritocratically didn't necessarily deserve it. And by the end of the year, Bowden Francis, on merit, was better than Manoa. It's not just the composure that he was showing on the mound that you're talking about. It's the stuff. Mm-hmm. Velo, location, command, landing a curveball. Like he was a more reliable pitcher to get you outs towards the end of the year last year than Manoa was. He might still be now. We haven't seen either of them on the mound yet, mm-hmm. right? So all these stories and narratives are nice, but let's see how guys actually look, how the stuff actually looks on the mound. But spring training, like it's not always a meritocracy. You know, like teams aren't really trying to build the most competitive roster for opening day. They're trying to build like the deepest, most versatile roster for six months. It's they're thinking marathon. They're not thinking sprint. I think that's a really great point because in our minds, that's the way we think about it. Like it's NFL training camp. Yeah. We always think like all training camps are NFL training camp where there's the special team or right that found his way in the roster because in the third preseason game, he made a play that popped on film and the coaches went, this guy has a motor and we want to have this guy's motor in here. And he, he, made, a, he made a big play, he forced a fumble, he made the recovery, the teammates love him, we want to keep him in the locker room. It's like it's a 53-man roster where the compete level matters and you can have the short window where that could have a real impact on your team. The baseball long con or the, you know, the long view yeah. of how the year is going to go, that, what you hit on, is... Is, is the way that we, I think, need to reframe our minds, our thinking when we're looking at this stuff a little bit. That's how front offices think about yeah. it. But, you know, people But like, I think it's an easier way to digest it as a fan where you're like, what, when you're confused as to why a uh, decision is made a certain way. It's like, because it's an easy one when you go options, right? You go, yeah. oh, option. Okay, yeah, okay, I got that. That's easy for me to process. When you talk about that way, that line of they're thinking about the best long-term team, not just the best team that's going to happen in April. That that makes so much sense. They don't want the best odds to win opening day. Yeah. They want the best odds to win over six months. So that might mean like optioning somebody at the end of spring training mm-hmm. who like is perhaps more deserving meritocratically of a spot mm-hmm. because you're going to need that guy down the, the line. Like the Blue Jays aren't going to use six starters again all year. They're going to need Bowden Francis. They're going to need Mitch White. They're going to need mm-hmm. Ricky Tiedemann. They're going to need Chad Dallas. Like they're going to need CJ Van Eyck. They're going to need all these guys. So Chad Dallas, big porn star name there. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, who is he? I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I'll leave that. Uh, yeah, I'll leave that Ladies to you. Ladies and gentlemen, Chad Dallas. Yeah. You don't see him at the AVNs? I do. Uh, but anyways. <laughs> uh, I got to go talk to him this week. Wait, so wait, I can't yeah, say things hey, like hey, that. Hey, guess what? Now that's in your head. Yeah. <laughs> guaranteed. 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 That's going to be what you're thinking of when you're talking to him. Okay. So when it, you talk about the meritocracy thing, what do you think the odds are that right now Ricky Tiedemann is one of the team's best five starters? Hi. Yeah. Yeah. He's incredible. Yeah. It's really good. But his clock hasn't started yet. Sure. The Blue Jays are wildly incentivized to not start it at the beginning of the year. Um, like the Blue Jays are thinking about finishing off his development. He just got to AAA at the end of last year. And then also with him, there's workload concerns, mm-hmm. right? Because how many innings did he throw last year? Plus, like how much stuff was done in the lab and on the side, you know, uh, back mounds and stuff. Like that all counts. That workload counts. But you're not throwing this guy for 200 innings. 
So if you put him in your rotation on opening day and he's going five, six innings every time out, like you're mm-hmm. going to push is going to come to shove very quickly where it's like, oh, geez, like we're burning a lot of bullets here. Ricky Tiedemann starts a triple A, probably throwing like three inning outings. So he did last year, started double A, throwing three inning outings. You bring him along progressively and you manage the workload because when you really need him is in the second half of the year. So I don't think he's making the team. I don't think anybody does for those reasons that you just stated. Yeah. It's all very logical. What I think is going to be very interesting is for a team that a team that feels pretty desperate in terms of winning games, like you said the thing about Alec Manoa's leash, right? Yep. That was last year. I don't know what the Alec Manoa leash for the fifth starter job is this season. Here's, here's my guess, though. Ain't as long as it was last year. I agree. It ain't going to be months of, oh, don't worry, you can walk everybody on the planet and we'll try to make excuses for you. And I thought it's kind of interesting, too, that the pitch clock even made another Yep. Adjustment, right? They went from now it's what twenty seconds was last year with guys on base, and now it's eighteen. Shaved off two seconds. Yeah, but it's, yeah. it doesn't seem like a lot, but it's something. It's another something for a guy that didn't like the pitch clock and kind of struggle with it. And yeah, he's in the best shape and whatever. But there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot working against him in terms of having Baden Francis down there, and then Ricky Tiedemann being sexy. But then he's also there's the, an element of it where you've seen the new seats, right? Yeah. Like the new configuration of the ballpark looks yeah. great. Uh, looks like they lost a lot of seats in the 100s, but it's all pointing towards home plate. They want to get people in there. They want to get people in the suites. They want people to be excited about this baseball team. And there's not a hell of a lot to be overly excited about that feels new and fresh and fun. Like, I don't know about anybody that is going to buy a ticket because Justin Turner plays for the Blue Jays. Now, right. I'm sorry. I just don't think that's happening. They're going to buy a ticket because Vladdy bounces back and people want to get down there to see him. Um, they'd love to see Manoa bounce back, but if he doesn't, I can promise you right now, like for that front office that might be fighting for their jobs and for this fan base that really needs a story and a guy that they can go, Hey, I want to go down and watch Ricky Tiedemann pitch tonight. That's gotta be an awfully tempting lever to pull. If he makes a ton of noise during spring and by late spring, early summer, yeah. you might be seeing him. That's, that's what Center. I'm seeing. I like, wonder how quick it ends up being. When does uh, when does the clock roll over on his contract? Because like we always have that date, right? Do you yeah, know what? It's sorry, typi- I didn't mean to put you on the spot. That's fine. It's yeah. typically mid May. It depends, yeah. right? Like it's kind of a moving target each year, mm-hmm. but it's typically late April, early May, somewhere in there. Um, like the thing is, if Ricky Tiedemann stayed healthy last year and continued mm-hmm. pitching the way that he was early in the season, he would have already made his big league debut. The Blue Jays wanted him up last year. Mm-hmm. He had all kinds of health stuff that went on with his biceps and kind of like very weird arm injuries that they were yeah. very cautious with. And that just set him back and he just wasn't able to get there. But the Blue Jays were counting on him to be a big leaguer last year. So mm-hmm. I don't like if he comes out in Buffalo, is blowing the doors off and stuff is good and he's maintaining his velo deep into starts and like he looks like he's taking those developmental steps progressively. Yeah, I think that like May, June is totally realistic if there's a need at the big league level. Okay. So it's so important to see need, yeah. how, what, what does Manoa's stuff look like? Yeah. Where's the velo? Is the slider like that 10 to 11 horizontal break yeah. it was last year? Or is it back to like the 14, 15 horizontal it was when he was a Cy Young finalist? That's a massive difference. Is he landing that pitch in mm-hmm. the zone? Is he confident on the mound? Is he wearing it between pitches? Like, well, how, what's his presence like? How quickly is he retiring batters? Does he have a two-strike pitch? Is he able to get out of two-strike situations, which he was not able to do last year? He got ahead last year. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get out of those situations. Yeah. Batters spoiled a bunch of pitches, ended up working walks against him. Yeah. God, that was the most painful thing about watching him, yeah. was when he would get ahead in account, and you'd be like, here we go. Here we go, Alec. You're finally doing it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, ball. Okay. It's okay. Spoil that one. Ball. 
foul, foul, foul walk. That felt like so mm-hmm. much of Manoa's year. And then him just being losing it as soon as that happened, the frustration boiling over of not being able to get those outs, not being able to get those punch outs. Because the slider wasn't nasty yeah. enough, didn't move enough. The fastball wasn't hard enough. Yeah. And his confidence, his ability to locate in the zone yeah. wasn't good enough. And those are the things you need to get, like to finish off hitters. It's, it's really fascinating too to see, like he's been, he's a guy who was doing a regular hit on MLB Network. He was never afraid of a microphone. And I've seen the workout videos all off season. Haven't really heard a peep from a guy who's very, very loud. And I, I don't mind it. Like, let your game do the talking sort of thing. Don't don't jump the gun. Don't set yourself up for failure. Don't uh, don't take something on that you don't need to psychologically. Maybe try to step away from the game a little bit. Like, cool with all of it. I'm not trying to read into it that this is a negative. But it at least is a point of interest to me that a guy who has been as vocal as Alec Manoa throughout his career has been this silent and that we've never gotten the, I love being a Blue Jay, I want to be a Blue Jay, I want to make it work with the Blue Jays quote. Still young, still yeah. 24, 25. And there were people in that clubhouse who were talking to him about last year, about doing less, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of the extraneous stuff, the social media, that, the MLB network. If you're rolling, do that stuff. You right, know, but last year. When, yeah, when, you, when you suck, you can't, yeah. They were talking to him about like, hey, like you need to prioritize things in your life and cut from the bottom. Yeah. And right now the MLB and network hits are at the bottom. Yeah. You're getting your slider back is near the top. But we forget like Kevin Gosman was non-tendered when he was like 28 or something, right? Like it, some guys take a while to figure this stuff out. Mm. And now Kevin Gosman is that guy where when he's 02, it's like, Here's a fastball at 96, like right at your chest, or here's a splitter down, and you're walking back to the dugout. He's that dude. Mm -hmm. He's that dude now. And when he was 27, 28, Kevin Gosman was lost, like, uh, you know, like Manoa looked last year. Who's the young guy you're most excited to see outside of Tiedemann? Uh, I want to see Aurelvis's swing decisions. I want to yeah. see his approach, right? Because he took some steps last year, and that's been the big thing with him. Like, the power is different and special, but mm-hmm. at the big league level, if you are chasing and expanding, if you aren't selective, I mean, you just get weeded out so fast because the pitchers are so good. Um, so I want to see, like, you know, his swing decisions, his selectivity, his discipline at the plate. So that's a big one. I'm a big Damiano Palmegiani guy. It's a guy who I was talking about. Yeah, people are really high on him. I was I was talking about late last year, man. He's got a ton mm. of power and he's very like Davis Schneider-esque mm. in the way that he manages the strike zone, doesn't chase, has a really good idea of his approach and is like looking for that fastball in that he can pull. And he, he can hit a lot of those homers that Davis Schneider did where he like gets into that pull power and just shoots a rope like over the green monster. Um, so the, you know, the, he, if he can, if I'm picking somebody to have like a Babe Schneider arc this year, mm-hmm. I'm probably picking Paul Mesciani. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See, I like that in terms of the immediate impact guy. Cause that, that's another one of the roster questions to me is, uh, it's fine having the Spencer Horowitz types. Every organization needs them, but yeah. Is there another guy that can be a Davis Schneider for you? Connor right, Cook's like, another good name in yeah. the in the bullpen. These guys had like forty percent strikeout rates as a reliever yeah. in the minors. We're slider. a little bit more familiar with him than your boy. You're familiar with Connor Cook more so than oh, yeah, Parmesan. Yeah. But I've never seen him. Like I, oh. I don't even know how to say his name yet properly. I'm like oh, okay. Parmesan. It's like Dean Parmesan. <laughs> that's, a, that's an impossible name. By the way, a uh, little tiny little breaking news: Bob Nightingale just reporting that Tim Anderson uh, has landed a job with the Marlins to play shortstop. One year, five million dollar contract. <laughs> That's a tough. That's that, that's 
So that means Rosario signed yesterday, and then he was like, all right, can't go to Tampa. Yeah. Let's go to Miami. Five million, though. Not bad. One year for Tim Anderson, five million bucks. And by the way, it was he Jesse was Wood. atrocious last yep, year. He was bad. He, he was, was bad. really bad. And also, there's a lot of the off field yep. stuff with him that he that that comes along with it. Yeah. Still, five million bucks. Don't hate it. If you're talking about a lottery ticket, that's that's not uh, that's not the worst buy for me. Dude, dude Ahmed Rosario at one and a half mil to yeah, the no. Rays. Watch the Rays just like utilize that guy intelligently and deploy him in you know situations to play to his strengths and end up with another that. like Harold Ramirez type. I know. I just I don't understand how every year it's this. Like it's, it's just anyway. Uh, it's frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating. I'm like, why is this? Is it you know? I get that they're cheap and they win more and it is Florida and the state tax and maybe the lifestyle, but it, yeah, it's annoying that guys seemingly will be far more willing to go play for the Tampa Bay Rays than the Toronto Blue Jays. It's just completely off the map, like attention yeah. wise. Their media yeah. beat is one dude, right? Like yeah, it's, it's been the same guy for what, 20 years? Mark, Mark, Mark Topkin. Yeah. yeah. It's like people know who he is just because he's the only guy. He's the only it's guy. It's like anything Rays, it's you go to the one guy that they've had. Totally. You know, no state income tax. Yeah. Guys, most guys like live in Florida anyway. Mm-hmm. Weather's good. Like you don't have any pressure from like a fan base because there isn't one. Mm-hmm. You just have to buy in that like this front office is going to like use you as like a cudgel. Like they're not going to think of you as like a human. No, <laughs> you're, think... you're truly an asset, a number. Uh, yeah. 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 And whatever the model tells them to do with you, they're going to do. Yeah. So you're going to be playing different positions every day. Oh, yeah. You're going to be pinch hit four in the fourth inning. Yeah, don't go to your manager. That's actually one of the most frustrating like, things is when you go to your manager about something. And I mean this in regular day life and you yeah. feel like you're asking them a question, but it's outside of their control. And so you're like having a conversation that they're going to take to somewhere else and you don't know what that, you know, layer is going to look like. And that must be so frustrating being on the raise because you are 00101. Yep. And so you do go to Kevin Cash and you're like, hey, here's what I'm thinking about this. And he's like, I'm hearing you out, but you're not talking to a thing. He's taking it. He's like, this is great. You can have your soundboard, but this is literally, you're screaming into uh, the void. This is mm-hmm. the void. I am the human embodiment of the void. Uh, okay, so last thing on the Jays. I don't want to take a break. Um, overstated narratives, right? That's part of the theme of this discussion right now. What's overrated? What's underrated? Blah, 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 blah. Um, best shape of your life in spring is... That's all sports, right? Yeah. Best shape of your life. Oh, yeah. Boy, oh, boy. What What is your read on the Vladdy stuff? I don't care at all what shape he's in. Like, I just okay. don't. We've seen him good at various weights. Like, we've we've seen enough That's baseball. That's the only thing that I want to bring up is when he w- was the runner-up for MVP, well, well, he wasn't shredded. No, yeah. right? He wasn't cut up, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, that's like, just it. I, like, I'm with, I'm with everybody. Hey, being in shape is probably better for all professional sports, right? Sure. He had a lot of barrels last year that didn't go over the wall, and I'm wondering if that's the actual positive impact of this is – the fly balls that he hits, yeah. maybe some more of them go over the fence because he's been in the weight room more. Like, there's a reason guys take steroids is to be stronger. There's a reason you work out is to be stronger. But, yeah, okay. That's his hard hit data, his exavilos were still, like, among the league leaders. Like, his problem hasn't been, so weird. right? Like, not hitting the ball hard enough. So, I remember, like, the athlete that I remember from recent, like, Blue Jays vintages who was in the best shape that I ever saw was Bradley Zimmer. Like that dude was a specimen. He was yeah. like six three, two twenty. Just cut up, right? Like mm-hmm. dude was just diced. Couldn't hit the baseball. Mm-hmm. Kind of a problem for him. But an absolute like Adonis ran great in the outfield. 
it's baseball, man. It's not a bodybuilding competition. Like we don't judge on aesthetics. We judge on function and performance. So it's great that like Alec Manoa has dropped weight. How functional are you on the mound? Like what's your slider look like? How, what, where's your velo at? How are you repeating your delivery? You would think that being in better shape would contribute to those things, but we've seen enough baseball now to know that there's like a diverse array of body types that can succeed. Well, at the it, can go, level. it can go the other way sometimes too, right? Like CC Zabathia has talked about this. When he lost weight, it's yeah. like he lost something. Right. Like it may, that just happens with some guys. So sure. do I think you should be in better shape? Uh, I think it's never bad in to be in better cardiovascular shape. Right. Like I do think we obsess about like what the uh, what the shell looks like yeah. too much a little bit where it's like, oh, it's the shell versus like what's actually, you know, uh, what, what that person's resting heart rate is. Like, right. That's not the easier thing to find out. But yeah, um, for Vladdy, I, I think that there's a, for him to have that dip in production last year and same thing with Manoa, to me, this is your season where you go, well, you guys got to find out if that's at least a part of it. Yeah. Like it's not a guarantee that it's going to be better. It's not a promise, but it's the media thing with Manoa, right? You go, hey, maybe this isn't the biggest deal, but the way things are going, let's take a look the other way. You know, <laughs> hey, yeah. if you're killing it, nobody's going to talk about your body. No one's right. going to talk about what shape you're in. If you suck and we're looking for reasons why when you've been so great, well, let's take a peek. Let's see what this can do for you. That's, that's the way I'm viewing the Vladdy thing is I'm not buying in that just because he got in better shape. I, I am a believer in this though. I, that I said one part of it is I believe in the, the barrels and the hard hit rate that if you're stronger, that that's better for you. I just, I, I know that's true from baseball. I know yeah. why guys took steroids. Okay? <laughs> this is why to be stronger. So that is good. I also am a big believer in the look good, feel good thing. Sure. And for Vladdy, psychologically in a sport like baseball coming into the year, and same thing with Manoa where you go, hey, man, I've been really working on my body and I'm feeling good about myself. And when I'm putting on a T-shirt, like I'm, I'm going down a size and that feels nice. Or, you know, people can see that I got muscles under here. That's a good feeling. Stepping out there, looking good. A feeling. huge confidence sport. Baseball. That's what I'm saying. It's yep. just that, like don't underestimate that part of this. It's just guys going, I got in the right shape. I put the work in and now that's helped me get in the right mindset. The worry is... If you suck out of the gate, <laughs> how are you going to feel about that? And are you immediately just going to go back to comfort food to make you feel better about the struggles that you're having at the plate or on the mound? The thing for me, like the biggest thing is longevity when mm -hmm. it comes to like your conditioning, your body composition. So this is like Alec Manoa and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. wanting to be productive and mm -hmm. making a lot of money into their 30s. Like that's the biggest thing. I don't that's know. Huge. I don't think it has, it's going to make that much of a difference on their 2024 seasons. Mm -hmm. I think their function will make, you know, their, their productivity, their ability will make like mo have much more of a say. And they're still at the age right now where they can kind of overcome a lot of the body composition stuff that, you know, maybe a 35 year old, 36 year old couldn't. Mm -hmm. But I mean, CC Sabathia is still hauling 200 innings like late, you know, into his, into his mid thirties. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Prince Fielder is playing like 162 games into no, his early thirties. down immediately though. Yeah. And then had a bit of a back yeah. issue. Right. Yeah. So, um, like I just, I, I just don't care what a player looks like. It doesn't tell me anything. It tells mm -hmm. me nothing, you know? Like, how hard are you hitting the ball? Like, what swing decisions are you making? How, what's the shape of your slider? Like, what's your velo? How are you repeating your delivery? Mm. That tells me something. How you look on the first day of spring training doesn't. How are you going to hold up in July when it's like third city of a 10-game trip, day game after night game in Cincinnati is like 34 degrees, you've been carrying injuries, you're tired, you're in a fight with your girlfriend, mm -hmm. your lips are chapped, everything's going wrong, and you're like, what? Are you, how are you going to show up 
there. That's that what Bo was talking about yesterday. That seemed overly personal. <laughs> you get chat lips. Like, yeah, we know that. I was like, what's the yeah, lowest like, stakes yeah. thing I can uh, put yeah, in here? But that's what say. Bo was talking about yesterday. It's yeah. like, hey, what are we going to be in July? We can say all this stuff yeah. now. It's all BS. It's all crap. What are we going to be when it gets tough in July? Because it's going to get tough. Yeah, I'm I'm not with you on the whole, I don't care what a guy looks like. I do. Like, yeah. I, I just think athletes should be in good shape and that they should at least be trying. Um, If you have a path to success, if you are incredible, and like you said, this, the CC Sabathia thing, fine. Like, I'm not going to tell CC Sabathia and his prime to be doing anything. Like, you sure. do what you're doing, brother. Yeah. Like, you go out there and you're just absolutely destroying everybody. Like, prime CC Sabathia is like, that's as about as entertaining of a picture as you're ever going to get. Yeah. That's fine. Do your thing, man. Um, You know, you're showing a Cespedes and you're first showing up and you're tearing the cover off the ball. You're ripping darts on this, uh, like, all, <laughs> like, I don't care. Do yeah. your thing. But I know that if you are doing athletics and you are trying to stay healthy, that we have a very conclusive set of data that says you are more likely to stay healthy in good shape and you are likely to be stronger and you are likely to be more confident. Like all those things tie in together. I think that that matters. I just, what I don't buy is I'm not taking it to the extreme of, oh, Vladdy got in shape. And so expect 900 OPS now because he's going to turn around. He's going to get around on a fastball quicker. Like that part of it. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you can... Yo, as the youth say, miss me with that. I just think miss I, me with that, fam. I think everyone's an individual. Byron Buxton is in great shape. Yeah, can't stay on the field. Anthony, no, some guys are just injury prone. Though. Anthony Alford, right? But like, you still put yourself in the best position to stay healthy, and that is the best way to do it. Right, but I don't think it's just a guarantee. No, like you're of course saying, not. right? Nothing but, is. Yeah, I nothing's just, a guarantee. I don't think you can draw a direct line yeah. between an athlete's appearance and their function or their performance. Sure. So that's why, like, when there's no evidence there for me, I just kind of disregard it. Okay. Um, so what is the evidence in terms of what the Jays wanted from Vladdy this offseason then? Because they are always telling him, like, we want you to be in better shape. Like, that is obviously an edict that they have. There's right. a reason why they didn't want him to always be going back home, that they were like, hey, spend a little bit more time in Florida. So there's something to it, right? Like, there is, there, there is that, that, that is pressure that the organization has put on him. But from an actual baseball standpoint, like you mentioned all the, the barrels and the hard hit rate and all yeah. the things that were like positive indicators for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., what, what were, do you have any insight into some of the stuff that they were giving him or the way that the organization is feeling in terms of the ways to turn those positive numbers into actual positive results? I think he's got to pick better pitches to attack. Mm. How many times last year did you see him making out? Oh, on terrific. Two seamer yeah. in, right? Or that little change up moving in, right? And in, then me getting a text message from Ben Ennis every single time without fail after he did it. Right. In like a one strike count, mm-hmm. you know, look, if you're in a two strike count, like you got to do what you got to do, right? You got to have a two strike approach. You got to be Boba Shed. Like you, mm. you got to make something happen there. But before you get to two strikes, like, don't swing at that. I really think that was one of the biggest things with Vlad is that like he can get to a ton of pitches and he can make really hard contact on a ton of pitches, but it's just really hard to drive like a ball that is like in off the plate out of the park. We saw him do it against Garrett Cole. It was crazy, but like that's not consistent, right? You need to get to those fat pitches over the plate. You need to get to those mistakes so you, you need to let those go, even if it's called a strike. If you've been getting jawed by umps all year and you're like, man, they keep calling this a strike, I got to swing at it. No, you don't if you don't have two strikes. Two strikes, different story. But I, So I do think it's like the approach and selectivity pre-two strikes and then what you do after two strikes. Because it was the most special thing about Vlad coming up through the minors, why everyone thought he'd be a superstar, mm-hmm. was his discipline, the pitches that he chose to swing at and didn't, having more walks than strikeouts, all that stuff. That's what can really unlock him as a hitter. Dude, you know what's so weird with that, though, is you're right. That was everything with him. Man, this guy just sees it. He's 
going to be the next uh, Bautista of players we talk about who should be umpires after their careers. Yeah. Because it just sees the baseball. And but, but what do we say about players normally is, because there's always the guy got a pitch machine. He's going to be more selective. How many years do we do that with Pilar, right? Gritchick. Yeah, exactly. Hey, these guys are going to be more selective. They're going to be more selective. Yeah. We've at least seen it with Vladdy, but it is strange to me now that it's like it went from these massive extremes of this is the thing that makes him special. This is the thing that he struggles with the most. This is a thing that we normally say does not develop with players. That right. it's like you show once you've hit the sample that Vladdy has had that we're pretty certain that this is who you are and this is what you do. And yet with him, he kind of feels like the, the the variable. He's like the Neo in the Matrix where it's like this is the anomaly. He tries to do too much sometimes. Yeah. And that's something that like he's talked about, the Jays have talked about. He's still young, right? And he tries to put the team on his back and have these huge moments and be the guy who wins the game. And there are you you can't you have to let those moments come to you. You can't be chasing those moments. And he's admitted that at times he has, you know, expanded and tried to do too much. That's a hard thing to learn, but it's what could make him special is that combination of selectivity and discipline and the exit velos, right? Mm-hmm. Like Kevin Biggio is amazing <laughs> selectivity and discipline. He just doesn't impact the ball the way Vlad does. If you add that those swing decisions to like striking the ball really, really hard and making amazing quality of contact, that's when you get Aaron Judge. Mm-hmm. Like that's when you get Jordan Alvarez and like mm-hmm. some of the best players in this game. So like that's that ability is there. Vlad hasn't been able to put it together at the big league level. But you're right. It's like it's really hard to develop pitch selectivity yeah. and like judging balls from strikes. That's why mm-hmm. the Blue Jays like draft all these dudes who have really good selectivity and like really good plate approaches. And yet but no pop. Because yeah. they're like, we can probably yeah. teach you some power. We can get you bigger. Let's see them actually come through on that. But like, we can't teach you, like, selectivity. Yeah. We can't teach you to judge a ball from a strike. We can't teach your eyes to recognize that stuff. But we can put you on the Davis Schneider, like, workout plan and make you this little house and give you all this pull power, and maybe you'll be something in the big leagues. It's easier to develop power than it is to develop pitch recognition. Let's take a quick break. Let's come back. More Arden Zwelling. Should have podcasted what we just talked about. Too late, though. You can't replicate. You can never replicate. That's the worst, one of the worst things in this business, and you know this because, again, you host out the letters, excellent pod. You guys just put one episode out, too. Uh, I know this because it just did a little few more downloads than mine, and I was looking at the numbers. Oh, no. And I was like, oh. Sorry, man. It's okay. How do you see those numbers? I have ways. Oh, okay. Yeah. How are we doing? Are we doing well? Yeah, you're doing well. Nice. You guys always do well. Sweet. Yeah. You guys always do very well. Awesome. This is the time, by the way, people, is to subscribe and review and go get at the letters and put it in the feed. Um, but just also make sure that it doesn't come at the expense of me. <laughs> only, only, listen, Arden has a lot of things. He writes, he's on TV, podcasting. It's like, it's, it's like the, you're like, you and BNS are like the Kelsey brothers, where it's like, do you really need this too? Like, do you really need this as well? Like, it's not enough to be the Kelsey brothers. You also have to have a podcast and come down here with the, the dregs. I mean, you're a volume shooter, right? Yeah. So, you know, you got to do this five days a week. We do it once a week. It's kind yeah. of a different thing. Yeah. You know. Fine. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Anyway, it's fine. Uh, I do want to talk to you a little bit about UFC. Let's do it. You had to be so excited about it coming here, first of all. Oh. I was like, oh. To Sportsnet? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Except for. Incredible. Giving uh, Aaron Bronstetter proper resources? Yeah. Oh, yes. I'll never forgive this company, though, for, they're like, you're a UFC guy. We want you to do all these things. And then they sent, like, five other people from the fan to sit ring, like, cage side. Yeah. They were like, I yeah. saw them. I was there. Yeah. yeah. They were like, everybody but you. I was like, oh. They're like, oh, we didn't have a seat. I was like, hmm. It's interesting. It seemed like we had seats. Saturday night, there would have been a Leafs game. Yeah. You would have been doing Leafs talk. Who cares? Right? 
who cares about those the jabronis? <laughs> and when they were like, oh, they got a couple people going down, I was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, they're going to sit probably far away. It's like their cage yeah. side. Cool. <laughs> yes. The card is grim, man. It was, a, it was, it was a terrible card. Anything. It was a terrible card, but I wanted, and, and that was the weird thing is that they had just signed this partnership and you didn't want to yeah. crush the card too hard and really kill it and go, oh. Yeah, it was, it was grim. But it's like they gave Toronto, of all places, Sean Strickland. <laughs> I know. And, and like, then nothing else on the card. And I went, woof, you really. And then the only other positive story, Mike Malida ends up being just this absolute nightmare scenario where he chokes one away and gasses out at the very end. And oof, yeah. No. That was a learning experience for yeah. Mikey. Yeah, it's just time. that when you're in that your was a mid-30s. Neil Magny's of that. Yeah. And like, you cannot lapse in the yeah. final minute against him. I like him a lot. He came in studio. Seems like a good guy. Uh, fought a great fight up until that point, but... It's it's tougher to have learning experiences when you're in your 30s in this sport, yeah. you know. So uh, we'll see how he bounces back from it. Anyway, we only have we we were almost running out of time now. Oh, what do you want? What do you want us to talk about? How what? about the jerseys? The new jerseys? Oh, you're you're stealing our UFC? No, the new jerseys are see through. They're gross. It's weird. <laughs> like it's very strange. He's talking about not UFC. He's talking about baseball. So what do you do with Volk? Like, do you how long you do have you have him on? How long on the shelf though? Coming off no, two knockouts. No, you you shelve it, and you you probably what I would do is see what you want to do. Um, Moving like not have him necessarily get the the first like Taporia can fight someone else. Yeah, but Volk is getting the rematch. But you got to give him time. So Taporia, winner of Ortega Yair Correct. this weekend, right? Yep. Can you imagine Taporia and Yair in Spain? Yeah. Oh my. But that's Goodness. what I'm saying. Volk doesn't have to fight anybody else in between. Yeah. You're letting Taporia fight, and then you're you're giving Volk basically. The problem is, is he's a psycho and he he won't stay. It's the thing. Yeah. He wants to be active. He I wants know. to fight, but he needs time off right now. But the other thing is, he's like 36. It's over. And that's the thing, right? Like it's if you over. you know how long are you gonna shelve him for? Mm-hmm. Say Yair wins. Mm-hmm. Now, like Volk's already beaten Yair, right? Say Ortega wins. I know. You know, like you could have a pretty, you take a risk. But I don't think Torpier is losing to anybody anytime he soon. He ain't. He ain't. He's he new, is he's the new truth. He's the very much truth. The the Georgians are the Georgian invasion is very real. We got to run. Arden's Welling. Thanks for being here. Safe travels down to uh, spring. Cheers.